everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Nandini. I'm Sam, and today we are thrilled to have Carl Wilkins with us. Carl is the co-founder and director of the nonprofit educational organization World Outside My Shoes. Throughout his life, he has visited countries in Africa to take part in and lead in volunteer and relief efforts. In 1994, when genocide broke out in Rwanda, Carl refused to leave the country, even when urged to do so by his family, his church, and the U.S. government. In 2011, he published the book, I'm Not Leaving, where he tells the story of the decision he made to remain in Rwanda. Today, he tours the U.S. to speak about his experience in Rwanda and guide other individuals looking to combat genocide and injustice throughout the world. Thank you so much for joining us, Carl. Thank you. Glad to be with you. To get started, we like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point or a time they had to adjust or pivot in their personal or professional lives. Can you share such a moment or moments with us? Boy, I like that idea. I, um, my mind's kind of racing, but where it just stopped to think about kind of a pivot point, um, I didn't want to go to college. My parents really twisted my arm. I spent two years at college, and I was like sick of school. And I'm like, oh, this when am I? And they had a, a the school had a international um, service volunteer service program, service learning. And in 1978, I went to South Africa to volunteer for a year in the homeland. South Africa tried to legitimize, you know, their apartheid stuff by setting up these homelands. And uh, this one was called the Trans Sky, and I was working at a school there. And I just loved it. Man, I loved the people I ran into there. I loved the challenges. I loved improvising. I came back from that year all fired up to be a shop teacher. <laughs> Auto mechanics, welding, woodworking, all that good stuff. And I'd come back to Africa and be part of these developing nations. And, you know, young men would learn the basics of auto mechanics, small gasoline engines and for generators and for water pumps. And so I came back really excited now about, about school and about the opportunities, the possibilities that I had seen my year in Africa. You know, during that time, I wasn't just in South Africa. That was right around the time as the uh, calendar turned over to 79. What was then Rhodesia transitioning to Zimbabwe was going through their independence battle. And I actually hitchhiked through that country in um, April of um, 79. And so I kind of got a, a pretty broad glimpse of, of uh, different, both opportunities and challenges um, in that year that I spent in South Africa and the short visit to Zimbabwe. And, you know, anytime you get a chance and a glimpse of something that really kind of connects with with something you, you love doing. And for me, that was like working with my hands and someplace you can make a difference. And I was discovering those opportunities to make a difference that then just definitely fired the engine and went back and finished training as a as a shop teacher and and. Uh, married this gorgeous girl I'd met in high school and she's like ready to go anywhere. And we moved to Zimbabwe six weeks after we got married, which was a week after college graduation, we moved to Zimbabwe. Yeah. It was kind of fast, but <laughs> fun. Although not as much fun for her. I have to confess <laughs> when she got there, boy, it was tough, but she's an amazing person. And she now loves the years we spent. Uh, we spent 12 years together in Africa and she would go back there in a heartbeat. 
Um, so kind of going off that point, reflecting on your, um, you know, your early experiences in Africa, what were kind of the differences in the reality of um, being there and kind of the expectations um, before you started volunteer work? Like for my first visits there, mm -hmm. my first experiences. Yeah. Oh, boy, let me think, you know, we're talking 40 years ago. Um, uh, and, and, you know, the, the memories you hang on to are the ones you kind of replay in your mind. And um, I, I don't know, I just remember a lot of fun and wonderful stuff. Um, I, I loved the, um, the idea of exploring was just really fun to me. And so the, thus the traveling around and the running to Zimbabwe, um, that trip up there. I, I don't think that, I'm trying to think now what expectations I might have had and then how things were different. It was really interesting. I stayed with a young couple, a young white South African couple who were teaching at this mission school that I was working at. And uh, so, you know, food wasn't a lot different. Oh, accents and language is a bit different. But I think so many things that I was finding as different, I, I was just finding them as really exciting and interesting. And uh, that was back in the day, of course, before internet, I communicated at home with these little blue uh, aerogram letters, thin piece of kind of onion skin letter that you would write on and then fold it and it became an envelope. And uh, some cassette tapes, we would mail cassette tapes. And I did welcome recordings from home, a familiar. But I just... I don't know. I just felt like this is an, a wildly wonderful adventure. And um, if I try to think of something that that really kind of was a big shocker or, you know, unexpected, I guess I haven't played that memory enough in my mind. It um, it was uh, I'm sure it was a honeymoon type of feeling, too. So I wouldn't I would say probably some more shocks came when we moved back to uh, Zimbabwe as a young married couple. And Zimbabwe was in the middle still of independence turmoil in 1981. And um, the uh, brutality we began to see in some of that fighting at that time uh, was pretty, pretty tough to kind of be able to take in and mm -hmm. deal with. And yet I think, you know, how years later we're going to be in Rwanda during the genocide. And I think, well, as tough as Zimbabwe was, Probably in, in a lot of ways that helped prepare us for what was farther ahead, which I don't know. You probably maybe you've heard parents say that or other people say, you know, what you're doing now is, you know, preparation for something in the future. But it's it's hard to see that at the time. But definitely mm -hmm. looking back, um, those challenges we found in Zimbabwe during those times when soldiers would stop our cars, uh, you know, just out in the in the bush uh, when some of the the uh, white Rhodesian farmers were being killed on their farms. Um, some of those challenges uh, were probably stuff that was that was conditioning and perhaps uh, opening our, our minds to um, the privilege that we had as foreigners. Even, even in the challenges of Zimbabwe, and even though some of those farmers were killed, there was also a large respect for foreigners that we were privileged to, to be part of. Not, not when I say privileged, it's not something I feel like we earned. It was, you know, that's this kind of the, the unfairness of privilege, but, uh, those, those experiences I'm sure had a, a pretty big impact for, you know, years later when we're going to be in Zimbabwe and the genocide is going to, I mean, Rwanda and the genocide's going to hit.
So you recently mentioned having worked for a mission school and you've done some work with the Adventist church mm -hmm. um, as well as when I was reading up. Um, you mentioned multiple times that when you were deciding to stay in Rwanda after the genocide had start, begun, um, you were praying. So I kind of want to mm -hmm. hear a little bit more about your relationship with religion and how sure. that has shaped the decisions you've made in yeah. Africa and yeah. since then. Yeah, you know, I grew up as a kid uh, on Bible stories, David and Goliath, you know, and Queen Esther, for such a time as this, you can rescue your people, you know, and Joseph and betrayal. And yet here, you know, what you brothers meant for bad, God has worked for good. And, you know, so all of those stories without a, da uh, without a doubt would impact my thinking. And, and then, you know, as I was getting older, I'm, I'm reading different books about the civil rights movement. I remember as a high school kid reading this book called Black Like Me, where a man, um, a white guy in the North wanted to know what it was like for black people in the South, shaved mm -hmm. his head, stained his skin and went South and wrote a book about it. And those books I'm sure really had impacts on me. And, um, so while some of these books are going to be in a more religious context, others of them are going to be in a, in a more just civil human rights type of a context. Uh, but I always loved, loved reading. And I love stories about people who, um, were, you know, faced with an incredible odds and, mm -hmm. and how they were able to make it through somehow. And so I, I know that, um, you know, when you talk about prayer, it's kind of like nothing like bullets whizzing around outside to get somebody to think about prayer. And then I started thinking even more. And even till today, I still have a lot of questions about, about prayer. Um, you know, because I think sometimes it's, uh, the, the images I've gotten as a kid and stuff like that, have not been helpful in terms of prayer. It's kind of like using prayer or something um, that somehow, you know, if you pray hard enough or you believe enough or stuff like that, this is going to happen. And mm -hmm. and people pray, pray really hard and they believe as hard as they can and, and stuff still doesn't happen. You're like, what? You know, this isn't working. So the whole idea of prayer working is uh, one that I've had to kind of rewire in my in my thinking. Let's see if I can remember this quote the other day when I was reading um, a book. I think it was Yancey who was writing about prayer, Philip Yancey. And he says, um, prayer allows me a place to bring my doubts and my questions in some my ignorance, you know, in short, my ignorance, and submit them to the blinding light of a reality that I don't really understand, but I can haltingly begin to believe in. Now, that's a real packed, a packed uh, idea there. But I really like it because it's not like there's a, a set formula that's going to work. This is, this is really about something that is enormous. The idea of God is enormous for me. And, and, and so that idea of blinding, you know, a blinding reality that I don't really understand, but I can haltingly begin to believe. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, wait a minute. Can you believe something you don't understand? And so I've started journaling. Actually, I started journaling in 1998, four years after the genocide. Found it a hugely important thing for me in dealing with PTSD and dealing with so much of the horrors that 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 we all experienced in Rwanda, um, but also in wrestling with questions, questions about God. You know how 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 can a God who's all powerful and all loving 
do nothing, it appears, and let a genocide go unhindered. Mm. And then when I start journaling about that, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Uh, this thing did not go unhindered. It was eventually stopped. It didn't run its full course. It ran a long course, way too long, if you, you know, if you think about that. But there were individuals who stood up against this very, very horrific tsunami-like, you know, unimaginable force that was destroying people by the tens and hundreds of thousands. Those people who stood up, what were they doing? Where'd they get that stuff from? And, and, and my thinking began to kind of shift from this idea of praying and God do something to praying God, give me the insight and the wisdom and the power to use this incredible gift of choice that I have in a way that can make somebody's life better. And then I look around and there were neighbor ladies who stood in front of our gate the second night of the genocide and stopped guys with clubs and machetes who those ladies said were intent on killing us. And I'm like, wow, for me and my family, that was God. God working through the choices and the hands of people to me is a lot more compelling picture than God, the kind of, okay, I don't want to be too trite or trivial or something, but just for the sake of shortness of time, God, the magician, you know, um, because if I, if I, um, if I'm in a situation and I see something that's not right and you choose to stand up and speak out against it. That to me is much more empowering for me next time to stand up and speak out than if some invisible miracle happened. I'm not saying they don't. I believe they do. But I think that too much of the time with the idea of God and religion, the focus has been on these invisible, unexplainable miracles. And for me, the more powerful, compelling uh, stories and, and philosophies and things that I can buy into are when I see people selflessly sacrificially put other people in front of their own choice their own needs their own desires that is somehow supernatural to me mm -hmm. i can attribute that to god somebody else can attribute it to something else and we're not going to argue because i don't have a need to convince people of things if i really believe in a god who believes in in free 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 choice and why am I going to try to coerce or convince other people of things? So I try in, in talking about God to be descriptive rather than prescriptive, because I think that that's a lot more appealing to me. Um, <clears throat> so when, when Rwanda transitioned from civil war to genocide, you made the very difficult task to, or decision to stay. Um, I was just wondering what were some of the motivations and some of the some of the thoughts going through your head that, that ultimately led to the decision to stay? Um, I would, I would say family is, is, is a way that I might be able to understand, might be able to explain it and you might be able to understand it. Um, I think there's a lot of factors and, and some of them, they take a longer time to explain, but most of us can understand and appreciate the concept of family. And this young lady, uh, Rwandan young lady who had lived and worked in our home for three years, had loved on our kids. She was like family. And her ID card said Tutsi, which meant she was marked to be killed. The American government had said, you can't bring any Rwandans with you. You know, it might be if the government would have let us bring Rwanda, the American, I might not have stayed. 
So those that young lady and a young man who was the evening watchman, those two people were the very beginning, the core of the decision that not not I made, but my wife and I made. And I think that's really crucial to, to, to make it clear. It's not something I did. I remember one kid asking me where we were in Taiwan, and this kid says, you must have done a real sales job on your wife. And I'm like, no, I didn't. I did not because she was family and, and our whole family, even the kids. I think the kids understood dad is not abandoning us. And that was, I was concerned. Our kids would feel like somebody else was more important. I never got that message. You know, they were 10, seven and five at the time, never got the message that they felt like someone else was more important. I think they understood dad staying to help Anita and Janvier. Janvier wasn't as much, I'll be honest. He wasn't as much like family. He was new. He had only worked for us for a short time. But Anita, um, she was, and I would, she was like family. And I, I would like to think that my wife and I would have made the decision to do that even for strangers, but that wasn't what the situation was at the time. We were there in our house. The American government said, everybody has to leave and you can't bring Rwandans. We're driving out. That will be stopped at roadblocks. They will compromise the security of everybody in the convoy. Can't bring them. And so my wife and I, we, we went in the bedroom, we talked and we prayed. And um, it's cool when you talk to my wife, you know, she's, she's just, to me, enormously courageous and brave. And she would say, no, no, I'm not a brave person. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, you are. But, it, but she would say through that prayer and that experience that God gave her enough peace. Not like overwhelming more than I could, you know, take in just enough peace to move forward with that decision. And um, so it, it really did start with those two young people. But the bigger picture, which, you know, would take a lot longer to talk about too, but is, is really important, is as a person who grew up believing in God, how could I say to my Rwandan friends, colleagues, coworkers, neighbors, how could I say to them, um, I'll pray for you, but I got this, you know, blue American passport. I'm leaving, but I'll pray for you. It was very clear in my mind that if I really believed God would be with them, why wouldn't God be with me? So there was that kind of bigger overarching sense of of mission and sense of um, a belief that you, if this God stuff is really real, well, now's the time. Having lived through one of the most horrendous genocides in history, do you still feel fear? Oh, I did then, absolutely, and now for sure. Um, you know, I think maybe fear is a little different because fear can just grab you. It can sneak up behind you and boom, you know, and, and all of a sudden you're like, whoa, whoa. But then definitely having gone through the genocide, I can say, okay, yeah, you snuck up on me there, but um, we're going to make it. We're going to make it, you know. Fear is is uh, powerful, but we're uh, I think we have a lot to do. Pathways in our brain that are willing to entertain and and uh, spend time with fear, or pathways in our brain that say, "No, wait a minute." Some stuff you got to be smart, you know. Don't be driving so close to that car in front of you. You know, I'm, I'm a little afraid right now. We need a little more space between them. But then the other kinds of fears that grow in my mind that maybe have more to do with rejection, you know, instead of physical fears or, or other types of fears, um, 
Yeah, they're they're very real. But I think that one of the greatest uh, for me, especially during the genocide, one of the greatest kind of vaccinations against fear is having a mission. And and uh, you know, every morning when I woke up and those two people in my house, I could look them in the face and the eye and know they're alive and I've had a part in this. Not like I'm the sole you know hero type of thing of that. It's always a joint type of stuff. But I had a part in that. Uh, and fear comes. And I'm like, no, 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 check this out. You know, these people are here and they're alive and that's not a result of fear. And so, yeah, um, yeah. Um, so there's this one quote that we picked from your website. Um, Surviving is more than just staying alive. Surviving is learning how to live again. Um, mm -hmm. Would you mind telling us what um, learning to live again means to you? Okay, one of the first thing that comes to my mind is um, is uh, dealing with PTSD, and um, you know you do. You everybody is super grateful that I mean at least I was really grateful I was alive, but then there's a lot of hard stuff, a lot of grief, and a lot of sorrow. And I'm nowhere near comparison to a Rwandan who lost family members and and witnessed much worse things than I witnessed. But I did find myself not dealing with all of those things, just getting busy with work, came back here to this. We went and worked for a year and a half after the genocide in Rwanda, which was really a gift to the whole family. But then we came back to the States and I was working and I realized this great sadness and sorrow that was just eating at me. And some mornings my job at a high school, I had kind of flex hours. The kids would go to school, Teresa would go to work, my wife, and, and uh, I would go walking with the dogs and just um, slumped down under a tree. We had beautiful forest around us in Southern Oregon. Slumped down against the trunk of a tree, and I'd be just sobbing, and, and the dogs are coming, and they're licking the tears off my face. And, you know, I don't know why I feel like I need to tell people I'm not a dog kisser because I don't, I don't want to judge. You know, people, everybody's allowed to do whatever they choose to do, but normally I, I wouldn't have tolerated, I wouldn't have welcomed that, but at that point I welcomed it. Um, and I said, I got to get help. And so for me, a big part of learning to live again was getting professional counseling. Huge. There's such a stigma against it. And so many times I'm afraid by the time we get there, it's almost like, it's, I don't believe it's ever too late, but we're convinced in our mind that nobody can help us and it's too late. And you really do, I, at least I felt, I needed to want and believe that this helped could help. And in wanting and believing it, I found all kinds of wonderful tools. I've ended up over the years, um, and I didn't do it for I don't know how many years. I need to go back and look, maybe six, eight years before I got professional help. Um, I ended up with three different counselors. I moved to another city, and I got lucky with the first guy. Second guy didn't go well. And I'm like, I tell people that because that's how life is. So don't just say, forget it. This isn't for me. Say, hey, this isn't a match. Go find a match. And, and fortunately for me, the third guy, marvelous match. You know, one of the things he told me recently, um, wrestling with stuff, and I might now, I might go like two times in a year, maybe three times in a year. One of the things he told me um, when I was wrestling with some frustrations and stuff, he said, let it be what it already is in your life. And I'm like, what? That sounds like apathy. That sounds like giving up. That sounds like, no, no, no. He says, think about this. And he didn't try to, you know, unpack it and all. But I went home and I started journaling about that. And I realized mm. it is what it is. 
it's here, whether I fight and resist or not, if I will relax and let it be what it already is, that's not letting it be what it always will be. That's letting it be what it is now. And in that more relaxed, non-confrontational state, um, I become, I come to a better place to address the issues that I, I got better brain power. I got parts of my brain that are engaged. When I get frustrated, parts of my brain check out and, 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 you know, the blood is gone, that fight flight stuff. And, and so just different tools like that have, um, really led me to things like, um, if, if you don't love the beautiful more than you hate the evil, you're on a, you're on a, you know, you're on a train crash, you're on a crash course. Um, most important thing to me now is looking for the good. And, and those are things that came from both counseling and journeying, journaling and a wonderful wife who I can tell anything, talk to her about anything and brothers who I can talk and a dad and my mom, when she was with us, I was so blessed with family. So, you know, it's kind of a, it's a package, this idea of learning to live again. And I've been super fortunate with professional help and, and my own work with journaling and, and, and family and friends and even traveling around and talking has at times been really hard, but it's also been very liberating and, and, um, and healing. So the very last question we yeah. ask our guests is what is your personal definition of success and how mm. would you help students define success for themselves? Mm. Um, uh, I don't know how many, quite a few years ago, um, I ran across this definition of success and, uh, it was within a Christian context, but I don't believe at all it's limited to that, to that, um, culture or, or way of believing, but it's, it, it was, um, faithful, dependent obedience. And, um, uh, often success is measured, you know, in productivity and, you know, efficiency and numbers and things like that. Um, I take my hat off to people who keep doing what they believe is the right thing, even when they don't see the results. They don't see that. They, faithful, dependent obedience, faithful to um, what I believe is true and right, the values that I, you know, three of my really core values are respect, empathy, and inclusion. Mm. So how faithful am I to those values? Um, dependent, I think that that one needs to be unpacked in, in, in uh, it can be unpacked in many ways. You know, within a Christian perspective, people are dependent on a relationship with God as part of that dependency. But I think people without a Christian perspective um, can really believe and depend on what they understand as good. And you know what? You think, ah, oh, this, this good, uh, no, we got to get out a gun or we got to get out something else. No, we don't. We don't. There is good that we can depend on. We, 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 we express kindness and gentleness and compassion. And you can count on that. You can depend on that. You know, faithful, dependent, and then obedience. Obedience often requires sacrifice. And I think that that's something that I'm not always looking for in my life. Hey, where can I sacrifice? You know, what can I sacrifice and stuff like that? But if I do switch my mindset to say, hey, you know what, if there's an opportunity to sacrifice, take it, practice sacrificing, because there's something about sacrificing that helps me be obedient to the values I hold, mm -hmm. to the things that I believe are, are worth 
being obedient to. What's really crushing is if I'm not faithful and, and obedient to the things that I treasure the most. And so I, I, I kind of like that. I know it's, it's, it's actually not as practical as most of the stuff I hang on to. I feel I'm a more nuts and bolts guy. But um, I do like, I spend a lot of time with that, uh, uh, you know, idea. Because I'm, you know, in my work, traveling around, working against, you know, trying to prevent genocide, like that's an enormous task. <laughs> um, but, but traveling with people, sharing stories and things like that, I am always trying to figure out how to do it more effectively, more efficiently, more meaningfully, you know, and sustainably, you know, mm -hmm. for my own mental and emotional health and physically, you know, practically, financially, all of that type of stuff. But when I really stop and, um, and just step back and look at what do I consider a success for me? Um, you know, when, when a student, um, says to me, you know, after sharing stories, well, I haven't thought about hatred that way before. I'm going to, I'm going to try this idea of actually embracing. And I know this sounds kind of crazy in just a moment right here, so we won't try to unpack it, but they say, you know, this makes sense. I'm going to actually give a try to that. Then I'm like, wow, that is, that is awesome. The real success though, is when I have a sense of peace in my own self that I, that I really am being um, faithful, dependent and obedient to what I believe is true and, and, and right. And that's when I have that sense of, of success. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time we have for today. Well, you guys told me I could go on and on. <laughs> <laughs> and so, no, thank you. Um, thank really you, Carl. Enjoyed it. And uh, to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.